Hey, welcome back to the Data Driven Real Estate Podcast. Very excited today to have a very special guest, uh, Spencer Raskoff. Uh, he is a serial entrepreneur. Um, he is the company leader who is now the chair and co-founder of Picasso. Dot LA Supernova. He also is co-founder and general partner of 75 and Sunny, a VC firm focused on early stage startups, as well as he serves on the board of uh, Palantir. Most of us watching, the, listening to the show know him from Zillow, which he co-founded in 2006 and served as CEO for a decade. Spencer, I'm super excited to speak with you today. So thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm totally excited to be here and appreciate the warm introduction. Thank you. So I, I only had about 48 hours to really dig into <laughs> 75 uh, and sunny. And Before I am you get started, Aaron. Oh, sure. I just want to let, let folks know to hang on at the end because we've missed a few episodes. I want to let people know what's going on there. And Aaron and I are going to have a conversation about that and what the future of the, the podcast is. So with that, Aaron, I'll let you take it away. Okay, cool. So 75 and sunny, I had really no idea. So from pizza to celebrity cameos to space travel, <laughs> how on earth did this get started? And, <laughs> and how do you yeah. come up with all these industries? It's so fascinating. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I've been an angel investor in startups really for my whole career. I think my first angel investment I made in 1999 when I was 23. And, um, you know, a friend of mine pitched me a company called Easy to Get, uh, EZ2 with the number two and then get GET. And easy to get was basically DoorDash, but it was 25 years too early. <laughs> there were no <laughs> smartphones, there was really no internet. Um, and you know, you could pick up a phone and call a number and then place a delivery order from any restaurant. And then they moved it to the web, but um, you know, it was you had dial-up internet access and anyway. So I, I made a small angel investment in that company. And of course, it promptly failed about six months later. Um, but over the next 20-something years, I had done a lot of personal angel investing. And so starting about a year ago, I sort of formalized that. And I called the firm 75 and Sunny, which is a nod to the weather in Los Angeles, where I live and where I'm from. And um, within 75 and Sunny, we make a couple dozen early stage investments a year. And you're right. The portfolio is really diverse. Everything from mod pizza to fly homes. Um, and so there's a lot of real estate. There's some travel. There's just stuff from my personal network. Just generally things I find interesting. Um, and then 75 and Sunny Labs is my startup studio, which starts companies, which I'm sure we'll talk about as well. No, absolutely. And you also, 75 and Sunny specializes in early stage startups. Is that is that rare? Because it's more risky, um, is it not? <laughs> yeah, it, so it, it tends to be at the pre-seed or seed stage, sometimes Series A. Um, and yeah, it is it is risky. I, I have plenty of zeros in my portfolio, starting with easy to get, um, you know, and there and there are many others. Um, you know, Pocket List was a was a real estate one that um, uh, folded just a couple of, of weeks ago, and that was one of my you know one of my investments from a year or two ago. So. Um, the thing about early stage investing is you, you have zeros, um, you know, and that is just kind of the name of the game. And hopefully you also have some home runs in there. Uh, but you're right. It is risky. How do you even go about selecting the companies that uh, 75 and Sunny will even look at? I get a lot of inbound deal flow uh, just from my network, just from, you know, people I've worked with in the past. And because I, I have a, I'm pretty accessible. I have a, a high profile online. So I, I probably get. I don't know, at least 20 pitches a week, um, just inbound. And I have a team that helps me assess them and, and evaluate them. And then, you know, my team and I also identify themes that we're interested in and that we think, um, you know, we think have potential. And, and so in some cases we go out and find startups that are pursuing those themes. And then the last big area for deal sourcing is through the venture capital community. So in addition to being a direct investor through 75 and Sunny and many, many startups, I'm also an investor in about 50 venture capital funds, things like uh, NFX, which is Pete Flint, the, you know, who would be well known to your listeners, the founder of Trulia, you know, his venture capital fund I'm an investor in, or Benchmark Capital, um, who was an early investor in Zillow and in Twitter and Snapchat and Uber, et cetera. I'm an investor in their venture fund. And, and so... A lot of those venture funds tend to show me deals that they're working on or evaluating. And so I get a lot of deal flow from venture capital firms as well. Well, it's been an exciting, 
I think just a couple of weeks did uh, between space fly homes and arrived. And I think it's relativity. I mean, there was over $500 million in capital raised for some of the ventures that you're behind. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's, I mean, it's an exciting time in tech and, and there is a lot happening in my portfolio. So relativity space is a super cool company. I've been an investor in that for years. Uh, they're 3d printing rockets and uh, sending, uh, you know, or as they hope to <laughs> send things to Mars. Well, you know, we'll see. They haven't had a first launch yet, but um, uh, it's a very promising technology being able to 3D print a rocket. And their real goal actually is to send one of these 3D printers to Mars to print rockets on Mars to send things back to Earth, which is just crazy enough that it might work. Um, so, you know, that's, that's a, an exciting company. And then there's always a lot of prop tech activity in my, in my portfolio, including, um, you know, a couple of the companies that you mentioned. I guess the only other question I would have with, you know, with such a variety of categories and themes, as you say, um, is that you're investing in, in, in people. And I, I read it, I think, or listened in a, an interview with you that vertical integration is really important. Are there certain things that are really important to you? Because you can't do yeah. everything. You're right. No, that's certainly true. I mean, I'm, and I'm certainly no expert in space, for example. So, you know, something like that. I mean, I'm not diligencing the technology, right? I'm not a, I'm not a rocket scientist. And so for, for companies like that, I'm relying on others. In that case, you know, high, high, top tier, highly qualified venture capital firms that are doing proper due diligence and are hiring experts, et cetera. In, in, you know, what I'm usually doing, as you point out, is evaluating the team as best I can. Um, especially at the very early stage, you know, when it's one person with a deck or, or two or three people with an idea, they don't even have a deck, you know, there's nothing to evaluate at that point, except the, um, you know, except the perceived quality of the team and, and the idea, but there's no data certainly to assess, uh, whether this startup will have product market fit. And what I look for in a founder or founding team at that early stage is some sort of chip on their shoulder. Uh, you know, so, sort of a, a, a me against the world mentality, a feeling that they have something to prove. Um, you know, I, I one startup I recently invested in, for example, the, this person had been laid off from a company and they were pissed off about it. And they, you know, they really wanted to show it to the, you know, to, to that company that they were going to make it. And, uh, you know, another, another person um, had had, a small amount of success, like a small exit in another startup, but didn't own as much of the company as they wanted. And now they're going to kind of give it their second go and, and try to make it bigger on the second time. So something like that is really attractive to me as a, an angel investor, because the person has, they've gotten a taste, but they haven't, you know, they haven't, uh, they got to first base, but they haven't hit a home run yet. And that's something I look for. And they're coachable, I heard, is very important to you. Yeah, absolutely. All super important. I mean, that what I basically am doing now that I'm not, you know, since I left Zillow full time two years ago, is I'm coaching, I'm mentoring. And so that's that, that's the game, essentially. You know, I don't want to, like, I, I, so therefore I need somebody to want that input and advice and mentorship and coaching. Um, and, um, that's pretty clear even in a pitch, if in a very first pitch meeting, whether that founder is coachable or not. You, you, can, you can suss out arrogance pretty quickly in somebody, and you can also suss out humility um, and coachability pretty quickly. Very cool. Okay. I, let's do uh, 75 and Sunny Labs because you've got a lot of really exciting things happening. Let's start with uh, Picasso. Um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, 75 and Sunny Labs is trying to start like two or three companies a year. And um, last year we launched Picasso, uh, which I co-founded with an incredible entrepreneur, Austin Allison, who's probably known to some of your listeners. Austin started a company called Dot L. Sorry, not Dot L. Austin started a company uh, called Dot Loop. Dot Loop, not to be confused with Dot LA. Um, Dot Loop, which Zillow acquired. And then Austin and I worked together for four years at Zillow. And what Picasso aims to do is it aims to democratize access to second home ownership. So I've been lucky enough to own a second home and it's had an incredibly enriching impact on my life and my family's life. But uh, second home ownership shouldn't just be accessible to the, you know, to, to a small category of people. It can be accessible to a much broader category of people through co-ownership. 
And so what Picasso does is it allows you to buy a portion of a home, say an eighth of a home or a quarter of a home or half of a home in Tahoe or Napa Valley or Malibu or you know in Colorado. Um, and you buy that home as a co-owner with other families that um, Picasso sort of pairs you with. And you don't know those people and you don't need to know those people. Um, but, um, but the home is yours and you know, you own a portion of it and you use the Picasso app to schedule visits to your home. And we do all the property management for you and handle all the particulars like repairs and maintenance and the creation of, uh, of the tax and the, you know, the tax information and the LLC formation, et cetera. So that's what Picasso is up to. And it's growing like a weed. I mean, it's growing faster than anything I've been a part of, including Zillow. Um, oh. you know, the company is less than a year old and it's, it's just on fire. Am I, did I read this correctly that you have reached unicorn status faster than? <laughs> yeah. Unicorn? Yeah. I mean, it's a weird statistic, <laughs> right? But we decided to, we decided to announce it because firstly, we were pretty proud of it, but, but, yeah. you know, secondly, um, I think it speaks to just the the strength of the team and the strength of the idea. So yes, just six months after founding, we were we raised a Series B at over a billion dollars, which makes us the fastest company ever to reach unicorn status. Um, and um, you know we've been lucky enough to have an extraordinary team, many of whom came from Zillow, many of whom came from other great companies. And um, you know it it just uh, it's it's a great idea, especially in this environment post COVID where people have realized that they can now work remotely and there's greater interest than ever in second home ownership. And, you know, Picasso is just a great way to achieve that dream that many people have of owning a vacation home. What's there other than the technology side and, uh, you know, the app to manage it and stuff, is there any differences in like uh, the ownership structure versus like the traditional timeshare? Yeah. So there, there are, um, you know, timeshare is, is, a dirty word for good reason. Um, you know, timeshare is basically a liability, not an asset. When you buy a timeshare, you're sort of prepaying for the right to stay at essentially a hotel um, at a discounted rate. And what Picasso is, is Picasso is true home ownership of a single family home, like a vacation home, a, a four bedroom, four bath, you know, $4 million house, not an apartment in a high rise. And you actually own that particular piece of real estate. So a good way to think about it, kind of a thought experiment, is if if you owned a Picasso, you own, say, an eighth of a home in, in Tahoe, an eighth of a Picasso, and Picasso, the company, were to vanish for some reason, God forbid, you know, we went out of business or whatever, you'd still own that home. You'd still own that eighth of that house. Like, Picasso doesn't need to exist for that. You own real property. But if Marriott Vacation Club goes out of business and, you know, and you own a... Uh, a Marriott timeshare in Orlando, like you're, you're kind of hosed, like, you know, it doesn't exist without the company. So Picasso basically facilitates the ownership of real property fractionally in a single family homes. And, and that makes it quite different from timeshare. And just because we have this technical audience, right. That's deep real estate investors. Like what is that? Is it it's probably not tenants in common? Do you, you know, it's, it's an you know? LLC. Yeah. It's an okay. LLC. It's exactly like when people self-organize, to buy a second home, which happens. I mean, I talked to somebody today who owns a home in Pebble Beach with three other friends and the four of them have gone and they created an LLC and they each own a quarter of the LLC and then they pay a property manager. So that's the structure. And it, you know, the problem, of course, is when friends do it together, it usually ends the friendship uh, because <laughs> it's hard to figure out who gets to use it when. It's hard to make decisions on maintenance. Um, it's, you know, there are just a lot of challenges of doing it yourself. And the Picasso platform solves all of those problems at scale. And, um, and, and the biggest problem, of course, is making sure that uh, you can find a home that you like and that meets your needs. And, and you can do that through Picasso without having to find other buyers for the rest of the home because that's what Picasso does. And I'd imagine, you know, so I'm jumping in here. I live in Tahoe, right? Full time, oh, lots wow. of timeshares, including a single family. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and actually met Austin at my next door neighbor's house in in, oh, wow. um, <laughs> in Tahoe. So in a place called Marty's Camp. Um, uh -huh. And uh, so, but there are a lot of fractional ownerships here that are tenants in common often. 
And um, but one of the problems is the marketability on the other side. So is part of that fundamental pitch, that ability to also sell and have that market yes. Yes. and have that yes. set of buyers? Because that's a real problem right now. That just it happens is. through the MLS, but realtors yep. don't really want to bother with an eighth share of something. Yeah. So that's another major difference versus timeshare, right? The timeshares are sold in this kind of alternative marketplace that isn't the MLS. And so resaleability of timeshare is, is one of the main fatal flaws of the timeshare product. Picassos are not like that. Picassos are real property. It gets listed in the MLS. It's in the regular marketplace. So if you, you know, if, uh, uh, You'll see Picasso's on Redfin, on Realtor.com, on Zillow. You'll see an eighth of a home in Tahoe that is a Picasso listing in the MLS. Uh, and it'll, also, of course, also be on Picasso's website, but it's listed in the MLS. We're paying commissions, um, and, and it is in the regular real estate marketplace, which is a, a very important distinction. Got it. All right, back to you, Aaron. Sorry. <laughs> 3% commissions. They're not playing around. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. By design. I mean, we, we, we partner with local agents and we pay, you know, we pay full commissions on both sides of the transaction. And, you know, the, the way we make money is by marking up the real estate when we fractionalize it. So um, we're not monkeying with commissions. Got it. I was uh, talking to Sean about this. Um, I've been surprised some of the stories that have come out with some of the cities that are upset. And because of the ownership structure, I was thinking about places like Tahoe, where if a single owner lives there and they're only there maybe a month out of the entire year. And now you've got eight owners. I, I know what I do when I go into a vacation rental and how much money I spend in the market and going out to restaurants. You, th you would think a lot of these electeds and city leaderships would be a little bit more excited about this model. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, we solve, we solve one of the big problems of these vacation communities, which is empty homes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a home that's empty and is only used six weeks a year, uh, it, it, there's no there's no business coming into the local community from that empty house. And our homes have 90 something percent utilization rate. So those people are going to the restaurants, they're buying lift tickets, they're going to the wineries, they're, you know, using uh, local services. Um, local officials do get that. Actually, we, we have very strong support from, from most local officials in the markets that we're in. However, we have encountered opposition um, and concern from some community members Um and and it's usually because of misunderstanding of the model or you know confusing us with short-term rentals um, like an Airbnb, which we very much are not because this is an owner-only product. Once we get a chance to educate people about what we are and what we're not, we usually overcome objections. But like with any new innovation, whether it's ride-sharing or scooters in cities or short-term rentals, uh, you know, there's there's community concern and opposition, I think, with with new models. And, um, you know, I, I think it, it, as time passes and as we educate people about what we're up to, I think that will will alleviate. What to markets are you most excited about uh, doing this in and at what price point? Um, the markets that we've had the most success in so far have been Napa Valley and Sonoma Valley. So wine country, Tahoe, um, the Southern California beaches from Malibu down to Orange County and to San Diego and La Jolla um, and some of the Colorado ski markets like uh, Aspen, Vail, Park City, Breckenridge, Telluride. Um, we are, we just launched South Florida and are having great success there. And we are launching new markets all the time, including international, which is uh, a major focus of ours. Um, the price points are typically uh, the whole home prices are in the four to eight million dollar range for the whole house, and so the Picasso shares are typically an eighth of that. So usually a couple hundred thousand dollars for a share, and we hope over time to move to lower price points and make it even more accessible. Uh, but for now, that's the price point that we're in. Okay. And and did you like, you know, hold back one week in each of these houses for like you and your team? <laughs> no, we, we <laughs> alas, we did not. Although we do have a very innovative employee benefit um, where employees can buy Picassos at no markup. And um, they, they the there's kind of a vesting program where longer tenured employees can essentially earn into owning uh, uh, Picassos, et cetera. So um, 
you know, we do have a very nice uh, employee benefit in that regard. But no, we're, we're we're not keeping the best the best inventory for ourselves. <laughs> Had to ask. <laughs> I think um, I I want to skip to Supernova and OfferPad. I buying <laughs> has been a hot topic, um, but I think we need to start with uh, the SPAC. What what is what is a SPAC? <laughs> yeah. So what is a SPAC? Um, it, it's uh, a SPAC. The, the term SPAC stands for Special Purpose Acquisition Company. And a SPAC is a public company that it's, it's when you take public a shell company that is publicly traded. And in, in my case, I have three of these. They're publicly traded on the New York Stock Exchange. One is called Supernova One. The ticker is SPNV. The other is called Supernova Two. Uh, the ticker is SNII. And the other one is Supernova Three. And that, that ticker is STRE, like like Supernova Tray. Um, <laughs> so I, I take a shell company public, and it has no operating business. It only exists for one purpose, which is to find a private company to merge into it. And when that private company merges into that publicly traded shell company, then the public SPAC fades away. It changes its name to the private company. And like a supernova, which burns brightly for a period of time and then vanishes, um, it kind of collapses into a black hole. Um, the SPAC disappears when the merger is complete and the private company uh, eclipses the public company. And um, the, the reason why these things exist is there are a number of advantages for a company to go public via a SPAC merger rather than through a traditional IPO or direct listing. And um, it, uh, just very briefly, because uh, this gets kind of technical, but briefly, a couple of the benefits of going public through a SPAC are uh, it's faster. It, it gets done in the matter of a couple of months rather than a process of upwards of a year through a traditional IPO. Uh, number two, you get the sponsorship of the SPAC itself. So usually these SPACs are run by people like me, kind of people that have taken companies public before or have a particular area of expertise. And so the sponsorship means that when your private company merges into my public shell company, my team and I essentially help you with that transition from private to public. And then we, we support you in the public markets for a couple of years afterwards. So that sponsorship can be pretty helpful for certain types of private companies as they go public. And number three, because it's a merger, not an IPO, these private companies are able to issue projections, financial projections, uh, because there is a safe harbor protection of sharing financial projections in a merger, which you can't do it through a traditional IPO. So this is why you see a lot of SPAC companies, uh, of SPAC mergers with electric vehicle companies or flying taxis or, you know, space companies, kind of things that are very hockey stickish, where um, if they can share long-term projections with public investors, then they'll be properly understood by the public markets. But if they go public through a regular IPO, they're not allowed to share projections. Those are a couple of the reasons why um, companies go public through SPAC. So and just to be clear, this has been around for ever. I mean, a long time. Yeah. years ago when I was 18, my yeah. partners in my first software company wanted to go, I think it was reverse IPO. Is that the right word they used to use? Yeah. But yeah. I mean, they used to be called kind of blank check companies. Yeah, you're right. They've been around for, for many years, for decades. And they were always kind of in the shadows. It was always sort of like a weird way Penny to stocks. go public. Yeah. Kind of a little bit shady, a little bit weird. And then a couple years ago, um, they started becoming a little bit more mainstream. And there were a couple of very high-profile tech companies that went public this way. DraftKings was kind of the first one that, that really made a name for themselves, then Virgin Galactic, and then Opendoor. Um, and then now you have very high-quality companies like SoFi and Grab and OfferPad um, going, choosing to go public in this way. And they could go public any which way. Um, so it's, it's no longer a, uh, you know, it's, it's no longer a, a, a sketchy way to go public. It's now more mainstream. <laughs> it's supernova one that is um, working with OfferPad, right? Yeah. And actually I should point out to your listeners that it's quite interesting. Uh, PropTech has had many SPAC mergers. So, um, let's see, uh, open door, of course, um, latch, um, smart rent, um, offer pad, um, Oh gosh, uh, at least five other prop tech companies have gone public through SPAC mergers. Um, the, um, oh, uh, Hippo, um, 
which is home insurance. Um, uh, state's title, which is has been renamed DOMA, is uh, title insurance. So all of those are going public through SPAC mergers. Yeah, so Supernova One is merging with OfferPad. And when the merger closes, um, hopefully in Q3, then the ticker SPNV will switch to OPAD and Supernova will cease to exist and it will switch its name to OfferPad and OfferPad will be public. And at that point, um, uh, you know, the, the basically the, the Supernova, which, um, uh, you know, my, my team, which took Supernova public will become shareholders in OfferPad is the easiest way to think about it. Cool. Do the folks at Zillow still talk to you? <laughs> they do. They do. I mean, uh, you know, I buying is so small relative to the total addressable market. And it's still so new that I believe, and I think Zillow believes that there are, is so much space for everybody. And the fact is I'm still a large Zillow shareholder and I still bleed Zillow blue and I have many friends there and root for the company. And as a shareholder, I root for the company. Um, and I think that OfferPad can be very successful and Zillow can be very successful. And um, so, yes, they still talk to me. I, I enjoy you responding on Twitter to uh, Zillow haters. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's still, you know, look, I, I still, I still get people, uh, you know, complaining about Hotwire stuff. And I started Hotwire 20, wow. you know, 22 years ago and I sold it 19 years ago. And people still, you know, talk to me on social. Like I didn't, you know, my flight was canceled and Hotwire didn't, you know, didn't, you know, didn't, they didn't refund their ticket, whatever. And I'm like apologizing <laughs> to them for Hotwire. So, you know, that's uh, the founder's curse is uh <laughs> you know i'll always be a part of the company one way or another now did you start supernova one thinking were you eyeing offer pad no 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 in fact you're not even allowed to by law you really cannot have uh well it's not, 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 like yeah you cannot have your target identified um at all so no we had no it's not a none of my three spacs are prop tech spacs um it was not focused on offer pad we looked at hundreds and hundreds of companies um and, um, but, you know, I never thought it was going to be a prop tech company, to be honest, and was surprised that it ended up being something as close to, you know, as close to a space that I knew well, but we met with hundreds of companies and OfferPad was the best. We, you know, we looked at this and we're like, wow, this will make a great public company. This is a space we understand. And, um, you know, we, let's merge with them in order to take them public so that we, we chose the deal, but no, we didn't know who it would be ahead of what gets you so excited about OfferPad in comparison with Opendoor and Zillow? Like, how how are they standing out and differentiating themselves for you? The biggest point of differentiation is the real estate DNA and the real estate expertise. Um, you know, Zillow and Opendoor are both amazing companies. They are tech and product companies at their core. At the you know in their DNA, they both hired for real estate expertise, but OfferPad went the other direction. They started as a real estate company, and then they hired for tech and product. So. If you look at the renovations, for example, of OfferPad or their ability to buy and sell homes you know, quickly and on budget, like the, the performance in those particular areas, which are so critical to iBuying metrics, um, they're terrific. And OfferPad is the, the profitable iBuyer. Um, you know, Zillow and Opendoor are a lot bigger, um, but OfferPad is, is more profitable and uh, I think has terrific real estate operations. So those are the... Uh, the advantages that they have, but the fact the fact is that um, while the media likes to, you know, the media and, and others, you know, like to ask that question, the fact is that it's a, like Zillow and Opendoor and Offerhead, like they don't really compete with each other. What what they're really competing with is the the selling your home the old way, which still has ninety nine point five percent market share. So only point five percent of people sell their home to to one of those three i buyers. So really, Offerpad is trying to convince people to sell their home, you know, in this way. And in that sense, OfferPad benefits from Zillow and Opendoor educating sellers that there's a better way to sell your home than, you know, having a real estate agent walk around the house, point to all the things that you need to fix that didn't bother you enough when you lived in your house, but now all of a sudden you have to spend 15,000 bucks to fix it for the next guy telling you good luck on, you know, general contracting your own renovation to refurbish your home. And then you pay for that up front and then putting a yard sign in your house. And you have no idea whether the house is going to sell in a day, in which case, oh my God, where do I go? Or is it going to sell in six months? In which case I can't really start buying my next house. Like that's 99.5% market share that way. 
and I buying, you know, or selling your home to an iBuyer is 0.5% market share. And I firmly believe our customers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I firmly believe that in the next five or 10 years, it's going to be five or 10% of, of homes are going to sell to an iBuyer. And if, if, if you believe that, yeah, you, there's to, then, then Zillow will be a $150 billion market cap company. Open door will be a $80 billion market cap company. Offerpad will be a $30 billion market cap company. And, you know, I'll do great you know, in lots of different ways, <laughs> and you know, and like, there's just so much opportunity as the share shifts from selling your home the old way to selling your home the new way. And you look at what's happened in other categories, right? Like, you know, let's take car buying, for example, and car selling, where, um, you know, you have Vroom and Shift and Carvana, all, you know, all innovating on the car buying and selling experience and, and stealing share from buying and selling your car the old way. Um, or Still a very uh, you know, small piece of the market and lots of room. Exactly, exactly. So that's why you know, to me, this is just a a way for me to magnify the size of my macro bet on i buying. I already bet Zillow. I bet the company of Zillow on the shift to i buying when you know my team and I pivoted the company to it, and I got I launched us into I think our tenth or fifteenth market, and I turned over a lot of the shareholder base and hired thousands of employees to shift the company towards I buying. And then about two years ago, I was like, okay, I, I did it. Like, I, I feel like I successfully migrated the company into this new space, time to retire. Um, but now I have a chance with OfferPad to increase the size of my bet on I buy. I think you were really instrumental in vertical integration at Zillow though, as well, you know, with the dot loop and now we're on the mm -hmm. verge of looking at remote online notary. I mean, it's really ecosystems to where a consumer could touch an ecosystem and really never touch another real estate brand again. Um, yeah. I interviewed Marnie Blanco actually in <laughs> in December, and we were talking about this and all the data that Zillow is able to garner throughout the transaction when everything's in-house, the mortgage and the closing and whatnot, and how powerful that is. So that's fun. Yeah, that's yeah. So I mean, well, Marnie obviously was an exec at Dot Loop and Zillow for many, many years. And now, by the way, she is at Picasso. So you'll have to have her back on in her Picasso <laughs> capacity. Um, but Marnie's awesome, and I'm so excited to be working with her again at Picasso. But um uh, yeah, look, I mean, again, think about the consumer in other categories because people are not home shoppers or home home sellers in a vacuum. They're they're using services like Uber and Grubhub and Instacart and DoorDash and TaskRabbit. Like they're on their phones, they're pressing a button and they're having some magic happen in their life. And so they're bringing that expectation into the real estate category. And, you know, they're like, look, I can buy life insurance on my phone in like, you know, 60 seconds. I can buy a car on my phone in 60 seconds. Why can't I, you know, why can't I see a house on my phone? Why can't I uh, sign a real estate purchase and sale agreement on my phone? Like they bring that expectation. And so a lot of the hard work that we did at Zillow was, you're right, around vertical integration, around trying to bring that transaction, transaction seamlessly into one ecosystem in a full stack way. And I'm as a venture investor now at 75 and sunny, I'm investing behind that thesis in lots of places, fly homes, for example, um, which is trying to do it on the buy side, um, uh, offer pad, obviously, which is really trying to do it on the sell side. So sell your home to offer pad seamlessly and then buy a home from offer pad seamlessly. So I'm a big believer in, in that vertical integration and trying to build a full stack experience for the consumer. Marnie and I joked. I said, "If if there's not tears, your first buying experience, it wasn't a real estate transaction." So, yeah, hopefully it won't be that way. You know, hopefully my kids, when they buy their first home someday, it will be as easy as you know, ordering an Uber or buying an airline ticket on their phone or some of these other transactions that we're able to complete, you know, seamlessly. Now, now you started Zillow during the Great Recession. Great timing, <laughs> but it also <laughs> gives you very unique insights into market cycles. So. Is Wall Street and prop tech positioned to survive a downturn if it happens? Um, well, I don't know. It's a tricky question. Um, I mean, the well, we sort of went through one with COVID briefly. It was it was a mini one. Like everyone freaked out for three months, and then we realized actually real estate's going to be on fire. You know, through COVID and beyond. Uh, so, so what tends to happen during downturns? whether it was the travel recession of 2001 after 9-11, which I lived through with Hotwire and Expedia, or 
the real estate recession in 2008, which I lived through at Zillow, or the COVID recession, which was brief, but, but, you know, but stark, um, is disruptors tend to benefit. And disruptors tend to benefit during those challenging times because, um, firstly, they tend to be more nimble, but more importantly, decision, like everything, all the cards are thrown up in the air at those points of time. So like in 2008, in the case of Zillow, all the cards were thrown up in the air, meaning meaning brokerages all of a sudden were receptive to distributing their listings through Zillow because their homes weren't selling anyway. They're like, well, I don't know, your, tra- your website with a lot of traffic, sure, we'll give you listings. And MLSs were receptive to it for the same reason, because their agents and brokers are like, hey, man, we got so many houses to sell. We just got to get them out there online. Here's a website that has traffic. Great. Sure. Give them our listings. So Zillow benefited undoubtedly from that. And Hotwire in 2001 benefited undoubtedly because airlines and hotels had extra cars and, and uh, sorry, cars and hotels and, and airline tickets to sell. And so they embraced online distribution, the disruptors of online travel uh, through that as well. So what happens, to answer your question, what happens in a re- hypothetical real estate downturn? Should there ever be one? Um, I actually think iBuying benefits, believe it or not. Because the biggest reason why people don't sell their home to OfferPad or Zillow or uh, Open Door is because they think they can get a great price selling their home conventionally. Oh, it'll sell in a week anyway for twenty percent above ask. So why should I, you know, why should I take a, a haircut from an iBuyer? So in a downturn, the certainty and speed that a, an iBuyer provides is even more advantageous to a seller. Um, that assumes so, they have access to capital, though, which could be that's tough. That's true. Not You're right. It. That's true. Um, and it also assumes that they can um, stay a, a step ahead of the market because they do own a lot of houses. Now, briefly, they only own them for six right. weeks. But, you know, if there's a if there's a sharp decline and, they're, and they've got a, a lot of real estate, that could be a problem. Um, you know, I... Um, this is, I mean, this is why when I was CEO of Zillow, we raised a lot of money. I think, you know, I don't know how many billions of dollars of cash Zillow has, but every time the, the stock went to a certain price, we did more share offerings for exactly that reason to have a lot of capital. And this is one of the reasons OfferPad is going public because they're going to have 600 million of capital, um, you know, once the, once the merger with Supernova closes. And in their whole company's life, they only ever raised 200 million of total venture capital. So all of a sudden, OfferPad's going to have a lot more money and Open Door has tons of money too. So, so these companies are trying to position themselves for that rainy day, should it ever come. Um, and they're trying to make sure that they stay abreast of the market so that if the market starts to slow, they can adjust quickly so they're not left holding the bag. And they did that really well through COVID. We saw a little mini version of that where all three of the iBuyers slammed on the brakes. They stopped buying new homes and they were able to sell their existing inventory and they all did great, actually, through COVID. Um, and they've, you know, and now they've come out of it even stronger. That capital raised is that this is a part that's never been clear to me. That's that's not really being that's being used to fund operations and the rest. That's not being used as the capital to purchase. You're right. Uh, well, uh, you're mostly right. Um, you're right. They all have credit lines, um, kind of warehouse lines, and other forms of debt that is mostly buying the homes. But um, sometimes it takes a couple weeks for that. So sometimes they they are using their own the cash on the balance sheet. Um, a bit of warehousing, and, like the mortgage guys. Exactly, exactly. But yeah, you 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 are right. Um, they're mostly uh, they're mostly using debt to buy the homes. Are you at all concerned about a downturn in the next few years? Well, next few years is a pretty long horizon. <laughs> I guess in the next one or two years, I'm not I'm not concerned. And the reason is. Even though we're way past peak value, we're way past the 2007 peak value of homes, of home prices, um, the 2005 to 2007 bubble was created by easy credit and people getting mortgages that they shouldn't have gotten. And as soon as that easy credit stopped in 2007, 2008, then there was a foreclosure crisis, obviously, and we all know what happened. This um, period of home price appreciation is not due to easy credit. It is due to a supply demand imbalance. And the fact is that we are missing about 10 million homes from the housing stock, somewhere between five and 10 million homes. And here's what the data says. In each decade from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s, we built about, I think it was 26, between 25 and 28 million new homes, each of those decades, four, four decades worth. In the 2010s, uh, I'm, I'm going to get my number wrong here, but I think we built about 
10 or 12 million homes. I tweeted this somewhere if, if listeners want to try to track it down. But um, anyway, so there's about 10-ish million homes sort of missing that just didn't get built in the 2010s. And the reason for that was coming out of the 2008 recession, um, home builders pulled way back. They were building a million homes a, a year and they went, you know, brought it down to like two or 300,000. So there were like five years there we just didn't build enough houses and now we're paying a price by having uh, missing homes. So that is going to take many years to rectify. And um, go ahead. Yeah. I agree with everything you just said, but you know, I think I could also say that, you know, the, the 2008 crisis was due to easy credit. Right. But I think some of home prices today are due to cheap credit. Um, thanks to very low interest rates. Right. And uh, a lot of people talking about inflation now. And I have my own take on that, but I'd love to hear yeah. your take on inflation I mean, and rates. Because if, if rates double, like these prices won't be sustainable. Yeah. So, so yeah. I mean, if, yes, if rates double, then I, I agree. But at, at, at Zillow, we did a lot of research on um, what impact increases in interest rates have and mortgage rates, I should say, have on, on home buying. And what we mostly found was that when rates are low, people trade up on price point. And when rates go up, they still buy, they just trade down a little bit on price. And so it doesn't really, you know, this is within a band. Like obviously if, if mortgage rates go from 4% to 12%, sure, fine. People stop buying houses. But when they go from 4% to 5%, people you know, they, they all of a sudden their mortgage, you know, the monthly mortgage goes up. And so instead of buying a $300,000 house, they buy a $280,000 house to get the monthly back into their budget. Uh, but they still buy. Um, and, and so I'm just, I'm not that worried. Um, I, you know, the Fed is going to slowly increase rates over the next two, three, four years. And their you know, mortgage rates are going to go up a hundred basis points over the next couple of years. I don't think that's going to like cause the housing market to jam on the brakes. It may, it, it, I, what, what, what I think is happening instead, and we're already seeing this, is first-time home buyers are being priced out of the market because they don't have the benefit of the appreciation. You know, if, if you're if you bought a home ten years ago for three hundred thousand dollars and now it's worth four hundred thousand dollars, you can sell it into this hot market and buy a home for five hundred thousand dollars. But if you don't have a home to sell, you you know you, you're kind of screwed because you don't you know you can't benefit from the hot market, um, and so people are just going to keep renting longer. And that's what's going to get the demand and supply a little bit more in balance while home builders scramble to buy more homes, or sorry, build more homes. And hopefully that creates more of an equilibrium. But to, so the, the short answer is, I think home price, home values and, and the general heat in the real estate market is going to pretty much continue for the next two or three years. And I just don't see anything that that alarming on the horizon right now, the way I did in 2007, and there's a great blog post out there somewhere still on Zillow blog, which I wrote in 2007. And this, the subject or the uh, title of my blog post was the tidal wave is coming. And it was, uh, you know, I was just looking at the data on um, delinquencies and it was super obvious that a year later there was going to be this foreclosure crisis. Now, of course, I wish I had put some money behind that bet. Instead, I just wrote a <laughs> blog post that nobody read. Um, but, um, you know, but it was, it was pretty obvious at the time to me. That's actually the call Aaron is and his dad are famous for running around warning everybody in 2006 to get out. And um, I have a, you know, I launched a foreclosure service in early 2007 and I got out of the market at the end of 05. So that's a lot of our listeners are here because of that and here wondering when we're going to say get out again. And uh, I share your, uh, outlook at this point. And uh, so just for the folks here listening for that reason, because that is a, a big part of our audience is exactly that mm -hmm. question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we'll see, but that's that's how I see it from where I sit. I agree. What data do you wish you had access to that you don't? Um, let's see. Well, for Picasso's purposes, I wish I could prove that vacant second homes, you know, are really bad for local communities because that would help us win the argument with community members. Um, and we're, of course, trying to, to find that data to prove it. But more, I think you know, more generally, what data do I wish I had? Um, oh, boy. Uh, I get asked a lot the question about migration um, coming out of COVID. And I just haven't seen great data on that yet. Like we all know friends oh, that are moving. 
you know, the stories of like, oh, these people left New York City and they moved to Florida or they moved to Westchester or, you know, it feels that way. It feels like people are moving to Montana and Colorado, but like, are they really? Or is it just a couple, you know, everyone knows two people and like, but the, you know, the numbers don't really say it. I, I don't, that's one area I don't really understand in terms of the data. Yeah. I, um, especially for us being in California, right? Like mm-hmm, we, hear, mm-hmm. we hear it, I think more than everybody else combined. I will yeah. Say. I mean, I, it's like, I mean, not, you know, obviously the, the, there is some data that shows that home values in the city of San Francisco are declining uh, because, yeah. you know, people are, are moving. So I've seen some data on that, but like, the number one know, like, zip code, the number one zip code out of San Francisco though, there was a study 96161, yeah. which is Truckee, California. Right. The I, Tahoe. Believe it. I believe it. Yeah. People are living. Oh. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So like, in L- where I live in LA, I, you know, there are a couple of friends of mine that have moved to Dallas and Austin and there's kind of this lore that like, oh, everyone's leaving California for Texas because it's a better business climate and taxes and whatever. But I'm like, I don't know. Cause like, yeah, I know three families that moved, you know, two or three families that moved to Texas, but you know what? Two or three families bought their houses. So somebody's moving here. I know, you know, for every person <laughs> that leaves, like they're, they're, the housing stock isn't getting knocked down and houses still seem really expensive. So I, I, I don't know, like I tend to think that the, the, it's like the stories of the demise of, of these cities is probably premature. I, I would agree. Yeah. And it, it seems like not only do we not build enough, but we also are, are on demographic trends. So you've got zennials and millennials finally getting off uh, the house buying uh, bench. And uh, in my neighborhood, I live in Riverside. Um, I'm about 45 minutes away from downtown LA without traffic. You can all laugh now because that never happens. Uh, I was walking the neighborhood after my open heart surgery last month and I ran into this guy and he's like, oh, I just bought in the neighborhood. I'm like, hey, welcome. You know, it's a great neighborhood. It's super diverse. You're going to have a great time. What do you do for work? He's like, oh, I work downtown LA. I'm like, oh, because you get to work from home, right? He's like, no, I go in every day, Amal. And you're crazy. <laughs> That's at least three hours a day of his life gone. That's the only thing I don't like, but <laughs> I don't think they're all moving out of California, but I do see a lot of it seems like I'm seeing a lot of people from LA and the coastal regions coming into the Inland Empire right now. So, well, that's that's the other piece of data that I would like to have, which is um, yeah. nobody really knows what's going to happen with this work from home thing, right? Like, I mean, my I suspect that most people are not going to have to be in their office five days a week. That maybe they'll be there one day a week, a couple days a month. Therefore, it's much more reasonable to live in Riverside and commute to Santa Monica or downtown LA than it used to be. Like, I mean, I have, I have friends, for example, that have moved to Santa Barbara, but they still work in LA because they only have to go to their LA office like a day a month. And so it's okay to live two hours away. But, um, you know, but is that, and, and, and nobody knows the answer to this. It's not that it's not the data hasn't been collected is that companies haven't even decided yet. What, what is the world going to look like? Um, and you know, it's, uh, Picasso. I'm not sure it's completely their decision either. Right. Like, well, that's true. You're I think, right. You're I right. think workers are going to get a pretty big say here just because yeah. of how hard it is totally. to get folks in. Totally. I mean, I talked to a startup today, actually a prop tech startup, uh, based in Seattle, it's 10 to 10, 15 employees that, and I'm an investor in it. And he's like, yeah, we really, we just can't hire people. It's so hard. And I'm like, well, where, you know, tell me more. He's like, well, you know, I'm trying to hire engineers and, and here for our office in Seattle. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, I, I'm, they have to be in the office because, you know, we're a startup and the collaboration and the whiteboard. I'm like, well, that's a failing strategy because like, you, you know, everyone's moving remote. Like, first of all, the talent pool that you're looking in is just that one city of Seattle. Second of all, you're trying to steal people from, you know, the Seattle tech companies that are all being more flexible now. You know, Microsoft, Zillow, Amazon, Expedia, these companies are either in the case of Zillow, allowing you to work from anywhere or in the case of these other companies are allowing you to work from anywhere some of the year. And, you know, you're saying you got to be in the office all the time. Like, what are you doing? Um, so you're right. Like uh, employers have, are going to adapt based on what workers tell them. Picasso decided pre COVID when, when Austin and I started the company, we decided from the very beginning, this was pre COVID to be totally remote, no office at all. And oh. of course that turned out to be prescient um, when COVID <laughs> happened. But now we've decided to stick with it. We have 110 employees now, I think. Um, no office, no plans for any offices. And it's working great. It's been totally seamless. I feel like we've built strong company culture. We've got great innovation, collaboration, coordination. We're using a lot of software tools for those things. Um, you know, it's not, it's not all like 
rainbows and roses. Like there are some challenges, but overall, any, I think it's it's great. Any favorite software collaboration tools, like not Slack that we've not heard of, but that are really cool that you like? Um, you know, because I'm not an engineer, I don't, I'm not really sure what's the state of the art for us uh, on that. Um, I mean, I, I did, in terms of software collaboration, I, I'm, I am investing a lot in companies in that space though. So like there's one that unfortunately Picasso doesn't use, at least not yet, which is called Kona, which is super cool. It's a, it's a Slack plugin for coaching emotional intelligence. So like what happens is when, if I'm slacking with you, it'll, it'll, give me a message that says like, Hey, you know, the person you're talking to, they, they really prefer a much more direct communication style. And, uh, you know, just tell them like exactly what you're trying to communicate or, um, you know, it that. looks, it looks, you know, it looks like this person's <laughs> having kind of a crappy day. And I can tell because their calendar is jam packed and they've had a tough week. And, and every morning, by the way, you get prompted to like post to basically tell Kona, like how you're feeling. And, and so it's the type of thing that if we were working in an office together, you can kind of tell, like you can sort of sense someone's having a crappy day and they yeah. kind of seem down in their body language. But if you're, if everyone's remote, you can't sense that. So this is like a software version of communicating body language to help people improve their, their EQ. Um, so, you know, that's the type of software that I think there's a place for in a remote world. I've loved that. I've always hated that, like the sender gets to choose the method of communication, right? Whether that's text or a Facebook message or email or a voicemail or whatever, right? It should be the recipient that always gets to choose. Like I want to have yeah. a router that routes, that routes those to my favorite platform and lets me work there. Um, but it's it's the same kind of idea, right? It's like, how do you take into account that other person's, you know, yeah. needs? Exactly. That's what this is trying to solve with software, yeah. Gosh, awesome. it's therapy at work all day, every day. I like it. <laughs> We're getting uh, to the end here. We are. And I have a super important question because, and I, I just think you're so well adept to answer this. What technologies do you see having the biggest impact on real estate that we might not be paying attention to because it's outside the realm of real estate? Hmm. Wow. It's an interesting one. Um, I mean, the easy one is AR, but I'm not going to, but uh, the fact is that I don't actually think augmented reality is going to, is going to change real estate that much. So I'm, I'm going to refrain from giving that answer. Um, uh, oh gosh. Possible. I don't know. Likely on AR. Yeah. I mean, Home I Depot tend to, does I, some cool stuff with AR. It's cool. Have it. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't seen that. I mean, I guess, um, I don't know. I, I, I guess I, I feel like payments and, and the, the FinTech were still so early that like the, the whole kind of mortgage appraisal title, like that, part of the funnel, kind of the last third of the transaction is still, you know, is still really messy and antiquated. Like the first third of the transaction, which is the search discovery thing, like that's crack, you know, Zillow, Trulia, Realtor.com, Redfin, like they got that nail that you can't start a new real estate search portal tomorrow. Like that won't work. The middle third, which is like the coordination and communication with the real estate agent and the kind of giving the agent the tools to the CRM and the the safe search notifications, and then even the writing of the offer and the kind of deal room coordination of, of, of all that, sort of like the dot loop DocuSign type stuff. I think we're getting there. But that last third, which is like greasing the the the, the wheels of, of the money flow, you're just starting to see that with Fly Homes and and, and many others. Um, but it, that's still really early. Like that, they, those, those innovations have like 0% market share right now. So I think um, I think we'll see a lot happening there over the next ten years. Okay, great. Thank you, Spencer. I really appreciate. Thanks, you. guys. This was fun discussion. Awesome show. <laughs> Thank you. Um, thanks very very much for having me. It's a it's a great honor, and um, I'll I'll, uh, I'll drop off. I know you guys are going to have another another chat here, but thank you guys. Well, Aaron, that was a pretty amazing show. Great job. Um, yeah, oh, so really cool. uh, great guest. <laughs> Super cool. That was, that was awesome. super cool. <laughs> super and what cool. a way to come back after what have we missed about eight weeks here of the Data Driven Real Estate Podcast? Yeah, it's been a crazy eight weeks. Crazy eight weeks. Um, All very yeah. unexpected and lots have changed. Lots of things have changed. Um, so what, uh, you know, 
why why have we missed the the last eight weeks? I know you've let folks know on uh, Facebook, and so this won't be news for everybody. But where you been? Yeah, I thought it would be fun to have open heart surgery. <laughs> um, I had some pretty uh, crazy symptoms a couple months ago, and um, you know, doctors were trying to say it's stress. I'm like, listen, I've been stressed since the fifth grade. I know my body, and this is not stress. My heart was racing out of my chest, but my blood pressure was good. I was getting blurry vision. Um, and I wasn't able to breathe. It was the weirdest thing. I'd wake up at one in the morning and have five hours of hyperventilating. And you read things about panic attacks and I'm like, my brain is calm, but my body is freaking out. So I had two doctors that I was very lucky that listened to me that I had known for a long time. Um, end up going to the cardiologist and during my echocardiogram, the technicians all hold up. <laughs> the doctor came in. He's like, yeah, that's not supposed to be in there. I had an egg-sized tumor inside my left atrium. So thinking it was benign, we had what's called an oops surgery <laughs> where they open you up and they take out the tumor and that went very well. But 10 days after the surgery, it came back as a, a sarcoma. So cancer, 1% cancer. It's very rare. So we started that journey. So it's been a crazy couple months of trying to heal from open heart surgery. I had a, <laughs> a Memorial Day incident <laughs> that ended me up in the hospital for three days and uh, another something that I have to heal. And then I started chemo about three weeks ago. So next week, July 1st, will be my second round and I will be bald as of this week. And I'm looking very forward to a shiny head. <laughs> so it has, it's been really crazy. Um, our community has been very cool. Property Radar has been awesome. Um, I've been overwhelmed. <laughs> I can't take any more coloring books, <laughs> flowers, <laughs> or food deliveries. It's been insane. Um, but just going through it, um, it, it's just been a crazy experience. Two months. It's so hard to say those words associated with me. Um, I'm 44. I'm a healthy guy as of two months ago. So not expected. This doesn't run in the family. And I, we don't know where this came from. So it's a, a big, a big reminder. And I hate for you to be the reminder, but of how quickly life can change and how kind of precious it is and how important like every day is. And, um, yeah, yeah. So I've really missed, uh, doing these, uh, podcasts with you the last eight weeks. Me too. Um, and, and this is the uh, first week I feel me. Um, and then I go back under chemo and I think I'm going to change my strategy. I just open heart surgery. One of the side effects is you don't sleep. So I was running on weeks of three and a half hours of sleep and you're just really restless and you're so exhausted and you're in so much pain and their answer is just like, takes take a norco I'm like dude i'm not trying to get I'm not trying to create that movie <laughs> i don't want to be part of that show um but yeah i was just exhausted so i'm finally getting back up to speed i'm i'm breathing okay for the first okay. time amazing day like you know it's hard to know that all the stuff you've been through in the last uh, eight weeks and you sure pulled off the heck of a show today so well gave me something to look forward to being a doer it is very hard to sit down and heal and to be quiet. <laughs> that is not my style. So I'm learning a lot in this process. So uh, one of my number one goals for 2021 was um, balance and joy. And like most things, they've been wrapped in poo sandwiches. <laughs> All my goals that have come through in the last year has been wrapped in things that are unexpected and you just have to run with it and make the best of it. So I got some things to learn apparently. Yeah. <laughs> not exactly how it is. Uh, planning on accomplish, accomplishing balance, but here we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, what happens from here? And let's give folks an update on what we're going to do with the uh, podcast. I guess we're going to put it on hold for a little bit. I um, The second round of chemo is a little bit important. We have to see this, the cancer is spread. So this is news. Not a lot of people know that. Um, it wasn't just in my heart. It's in multiple organs, muscle, bone, unfortunately. So the second count round of chemo is, is really systematic, just trying to squash it. Um, I'm very excited about some other things that I'll talk about maybe at another time, um, but uh, we'll see after the second one how I handle the chemo and how the cancer is reacting to the chemo. Um, but so far, I feel really good. I think part of it was just my strategy going into the last chemo and so much pain and no sleep. And now that that's getting fixed, I feel like a different human being. So I am silly and goofy and feel more like myself. So 
the next three weeks will be really important for me to find out how this, how I'm responding. And then we'll go from there. Well, Aaron, my friend, you're uh, an amazing one of a kind uh, unicorn. Um, and if anybody can beat this thing, uh, I know it's you. And you. Uh, I look forward to you beating it. And for us coming back and continuing this, we've had some amazing guests. You've done an amazing job uh, with this. And, uh, you know, just appreciate all your help over the last uh, year and so in this and so many other things. And uh, so folks, this is it for a little while. Um, and I, I hope you keep uh, Aaron in your thoughts and prayers and, uh, you know, uh, send all your good juju his way. And uh, hopefully we'll be back. But none of your remedies. <laughs> no, no more remedies. No more remedies. <laughs> I'm full. <laughs> uh, Aaron. <laughs> Thank you, guys. I I look forward to coming back. And now that we've had Spencer on, who's going to say no now? Yeah, exactly. Hello. (laughs) All right. Awesome. Bye.